is Mike. I'm on staff here at the church, and I'm so glad to be uh, here to worship God with you in person. And some of you know uh, why I've been gone. I've been in uh, Philadelphia for um, a little over a month. My son, Nathan, he had uh, pretty serious brain surgery, and uh, it's called a hemispherotomy back on June 15th. And uh, the first thing I want to say about that is I love you guys. This church family has supported us in too many ways to mention, and there's too many people that thank. Uh, I will forget some people, and there's people that have served our family that I don't even know who you are. So I just want to just say a coverall thank you to Living Water Community Church. You guys have been tremendous during a, a very trying time. So I got uh, out today. Uh, my wife and I were tag teaming, so I tagged her in. She drove up from, or over from Harrisburg today. And uh, I'm here for the three services, and then I go back tomorrow. And uh, what I want to try and do here is give you a little bit of a, an update, because I know so many of you have been praying. I want you to get a little feedback as to how uh, the surgery went but also get an introduction into our text today. So if I play my cards right, I'll be able to do both. So in order to do that, let me, let me take you back to uh, June 15th, Tuesday, I believe, uh, a date that I will remember for the rest of my life. Uh, my wife and I and Nathan, we got up uh, really early that day to drive out to Philadelphia because that's how they do. If you do a surgery, it's typically early, and then there's a bunch of workup if you've had any sort of surgery. Uh, so we left uh, very early, drove out there, got checked in, and during the uh, pre-op time, we were in the pre-op room, the surgeon came in, a guy we had spoke to before. His name is Dr. Kennedy. He is my new hero. I'm a big fan of Dr. Kennedy. Uh, we had talked to him, obviously, before the surgery, asking questions. He was letting us know all about it. And he came in, and, and for some reason, six hours was in my mind in terms of the duration of the, of the surgery. I thought that's what, it, what he initially said. And so I wanted to confirm that with him. And when I did, he said, well, it could be six hours, but it could be a whole lot longer. And then he said these words. He said, Mike, the um, thing you need to remember is long just means long. So we prayed for Nate, and he went back to, the, to the, the OR, and Tara and I made our way into that waiting room. We were one of the first people in there. And six hours went by, and seven, and eight, and nine, and 10. After 11 hours, you know, you can only do so much pacing and drinking coffee uh, and napping in uncomfortable chairs. I, uh, after the 11th hour, I started getting a little goofy. I, I texted my wife, who was like three feet away from me, and I, I said, in the text, I said, quote of the day, long just means long. And uh, 12 hours go by, over 12 hours. We're the only ones in the room. I told the attendant, just give us the keys. We'll lock up, turn off the lights when we're done. We were the only ones in this big, vast room. And after 12 hours, Dr. Kennedy comes in. And I am watching this guy like a hawk, 
right? I mean, I'm looking at every movement of him, like his, the countenance, his expressions on his face. Does he have a spring in his step? Uh, is he coming bearing good news or not so good news? And so he makes his way over to us. wasn't hard to find us. We were the only ones in there. He came over, sat down, and crossed his legs. I was like, I like that. All right, I like, I'm digging the relaxed posture, all right? And I'm just waiting for him to open his mouth and speak. And he said, well, everything's ship shape. Now, I don't know that I've ever used the term or the phrase ship shape in my entire life. Uh, I've heard it a few times, probably originates in the Navy probably, but uh, I knew what he meant. And it was music to my ears. And what was happening there is this man had some very important information for us. He, he, he came in bearing news, and that's why I was watching him so closely. And I would say that we could even say that he had revelation for us. He was going to reveal to us what had transpired for the last 12 hours, and we were very much interested to hear what he had to communicate. This was one man speaking to two parents about the well-being of a child. How much more should all of humanity want to hear from the God of the universe who speaks to all people at all times to reveal who he is and what his desires are for us? Our God speaks. We learned that last week, and that's we're going to continue where we left off. But I want to get into what's known as special revelation. That is our Bible. So if you have a Bible, please take that out. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Pastor Ben uh, left off in Romans 1. We're going to pick up right there and focus in on verses 21 through 32. But I need to bring in 18, 19, and 20. He spent two weekends on those, those verses. They tie in in a very important way to what we're going to look at today. So Romans 1, if you're able to please stand. We do that to honor the Lord that we are hearing from him through his word. I'll let you get there. Romans 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Go all the way through the end of the chapter. And I'm reading from the ESV. God's word says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, sang those songs earlier, my, my eyes welled up with tears as we sang about you being our provider. Lord, and you have provided for my boy Nate. You've provided for our family. You provide in so many ways, Lord. And I ask that you would uh, provide me the, uh, uh, the ability to convey your truth uh, clearly uh, without uh, doing damage to the text, that it would be conveyed in the way that it ought to be conveyed. Lord, and that you would give us uh, receptive minds and ears and hearts to what it is that you have for us, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified. I ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. May I have a seat? <clears throat> Thank you. So as we have learned, God is a, is a communicative God. He speaks to us, and he wants to be heard. And he is heard, loud and clear. As we looked at last, last week, Pastor Ben talked about what theologians call general revelation, that God speaks through creation by the things that are made. And he speaks in a multitude of ways. We just experienced one here, special revelation, the word of God. But the problem is, not everybody wants to hear from him. They're unlike me with Dr. Kennedy. They, they don't want to hear what God has to say. The message gets through, but what they do upon reception is they push it down. They suppress that truth. They don't embrace it. And our passage today looks at what's, what I've titled, the slippery slope of suppression. And we're going to look at a downward spiral that occurs when this happens. It is a descent into more and more depravity. And it's not pretty, not at all. And as ugly as it is, though, we need to stare it in the face. Because I think this text really helps us understand what we see going on in our world today. So let's get it. Verse 21 Romans 1, 21 says, For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It says, for although they knew God, did they know God? Absolutely. Again, the truth gets through. God is a very effective communicator. If he wants you to know something, you better believe you're gonna know it. And again, it's that general knowledge Two things that Pastor Ben brought out last week. God exists and he's powerful. But notice what kicks off the downward spiral here. It seems very subtle. It's a a failure to honor. Some of your Bibles will say glorify. Others will say worship God or give thanks to him. They did not give him the glory that he deserves. And one of the questions that people ask and wrestle with in our society, and it's been wrestled with for years, is people ask this question, like, what is the meaning of life? Like, it's this such profound question that really can't be answered, which is not true. Because I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer. I think the totality of the Bible will give us that answer. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism kind of nutshells it for us. In, in, in that catechism, it's, it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Basically, like, what, why are you here? What, what, is your, what, is the, what is God's desire for your life? What, 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 what's his will for your life? I'm going to go ahead and tell you. The Westminster Catechism says it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. If you hear nothing else tonight, hear that. That, that is your goal. Give God glory. Ascribe glory to him. He rightly deserves it. And then just enjoy him. That, that, that's, you know, and then you figure out the rest of your days what that looks like, but that's the meaning of life. But these people have failed to do that. They don't honor him, nor do they give thanks to him. You ever go into a store, you know, uh, you walk up to the door and you open it up and because you're a good Christian demonstrating the fruit of the spirit, you want to be kind, you look behind you to see if anybody is close by so that you can hold the door for them. Sometimes it's that awkward 10-foot space, like, do I hold the door? Do I not? But you're feeling especially generous this day. You might even lean off to the side and kind of let them pass through. Has anybody ever just walked by you, just walked into the store without saying anything? Do you give them a little something under your breath? Like, you're welcome. You laugh because you know it's true, right? If that annoys sinful creatures like you and me when it comes to holding open a door, how should the God of the universe react when he's upholding the universe by the word of his power and we fail to thank him? We failed to give him a thank you. I talked about it last time I was up here. I don't want to labor the point. We talked about, we, it's a reoccurring theme in the Bible. Thankfulness to God. Don't sleep on it. It's extremely important. And that and not honoring him is what kicks all this off. So they don't honor him. They don't give thanks to him. And then they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts become darkened. What does that mean? The light goes out. The light goes out and they're not able to think properly. They're not. They've rejected light, therefore they stumble around in the darkness. One of my favorite commentators, a guy named James Boyce, who 
pastored for many years out in Philadelphia. I escaped from the hospital one day when, uh, when Tara was there. Uh, we were both there. It was one of those rare occurrences. I walked the streets of, of Philadelphia, and they had some local bookstores. I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to that stuff. I walked into this one store, and right there at the front on the rack, they hadn't even got it to the shelf yet, the four-set commentary, the four-volume commentary, James Boyce on the Book of Romans. This thing sells Amazon. You can look at it. It's about 90 bucks. This store, $45. And they're in good shape. I'm like, God is good. So I pay the 45 bucks. I open it up, and James Boyce said this about that. He said, God blew out the candle and left them to grope in the dark about who he is and what he's like. See, this world is God's world. He's the creator. Right? That's what we learned. He's the creator. He fashioned it. He set it up the way he wants to set it up. Not only that, he illuminates it. So we can kind of get the lay of the land. Right? And when you say, forget you, I'm going to walk through this world without you, of course you're going to stumble and fall. Here's a, here's a very lame sermon illustration for you. And it would have been more lame if we were outside. So I'm glad we're in here because it might just work a little bit. We, Living Water Community Church staff, whomever you want to call it, we created the layout of this room. We decided we'll put some chairs here, and then we'll put some chairs there, and we'll kind of have that funky shape, and chairs there, and we'll have an aisle here and an aisle there. We created the layout, okay? But we're also the ones that illuminate this room. Now, even in broad daylight, if all the lights are off, Pastor Paul will attest to this. We have night lights all over the place because you will bump into things left and right. It could be 12 noon. It's very dark in here. If we were to cut off the lights in here or you willingly put on a blindfold and you come in for service, you're going to have a hard time navigating your, your way to your favorite chair. You're going to be stumbling and bumbling, bloody shins. Why? You know, because you can't see where you're going. And how many people in our world are walking around with bloody shins, right? They, they, they walk through God's creation having rejected the creator who also happens to be the light of the world. Things will not go well for you. The downward spiral continues. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These suppressors become wise fools, an oxymoron. You know what they become? They become sophomores. Did you ever hear that? I remember being a second year of college and I, somebody enlightened me to this. Mike, you're a wise fool. It's from the Greek. Sophos, if I'm pronouncing it properly, sophos means wise. Moros, where we get the term moron, means foolish. They become sophomores. They're, they're wise fools. And my apologies to everybody who's entering into 10th grade, like my boy Nate, or going into your second year of higher education. Don't blame me. Blame the Greek language, okay? You're a wise fool. So yes, the, the thinking and reasoning abilities have been radically affected. We saw that in verse 21. But what you need to know is this right here is not so much an intellectual indictment as it is a moral indictment. You've probably heard the verse in the Old Testament. Psalm 14 talks about, um, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And we tend to think that they, they're not smart. 
They don't have the knowledge. Again, the message gets through. They have the knowledge. What does the text say? What can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. He made it plain such that they are without excuse. This is not an intellectual issue. This is a moral issue as they suppress that truth. They know God exists. They just don't like him. Why? Because they see him as a threat. His holiness, his righteous character will butt up against their sinful desires. We said it earlier, those big words we threw out, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's, he knows everything. You can't, you can't escape him. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere. You can't escape his presence. He knows all, sees all, and people don't want to be held accountable. They say, I don't answer to anyone. But God comes along and says, no, you will answer to me. And they become anapologetus in the Greek, without excuse. They have no defense. Despite cupping their hands over their ears saying, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Or covering their eyes and say, I don't see any evidence for God. Well, no wonder. You're suppressing that truth. They simply don't want to be told what to do. It is a moral indictment. One of the clearest examples I saw of this is a radio interview that I heard about uh, 12 years ago. It was 2009, a radio interview between a Christian, a man named Todd Friel. He had on the show uh, professing, a former professing atheist, Christopher Hitchens. And I say former professing atheist because He's passed away about 10 years ago, and so for the last 10 years, he is now a confessing theist. But back when he was a professing atheist, Todd Friel had him on the show, and they did an interview, and it was very interesting. Todd Friel took an approach that is controversial. He's kind of been beat up over it. Um, I saw what he was doing, but at the end of the interview, there was something that was so poignant. I want to share that with you. I got the transcript right here. Friel says to Hitchens, he says, He quotes Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, a prince of preachers, he said, somebody who fights and wars against God, typically, if you want to know the reason why, just follow him home. Sir, is it possible that the reason you rage so much against God is because you just want to live your own autonomous way, living any way that you want to, any lifestyle that you prefer without being accountable to your creator? To which Hitchens responds, I think that's highly probable. Yes. I appreciate his honesty. See, despite what people say with their mouth, everyone worships a God. They they either worship the true and living God, capital G, or they worship some other God, a God, who's not the true God, with a lowercase g. That's true for everybody. It's either the true and living God or it's something else. And what did Hitchens do? He made a trade. He made a very bad trade. He exchanged the glory of the immortal God for a much lesser God, himself. And he became, in effect, an idolater. See, we all worship someone or something. It's either the creator God or it's an idol. What is an idol? Something or someone within creation 
to whom or to what we give our devotion to, we give our affection to, we worship it. There's only one true God, make no mistake about it, but there is a multitude of idols, a seemingly endless amount of idols. And we need to get beyond blocks of wood, statues. An idol doesn't have to be even something that's physical. It could be like money, where people say, I pursue it at all costs. Your idol could be your job, I'm a workaholic. Your idol could be power, I stop at nothing to get it. Your idol could be sex, I have to have it. Your idol could be your sexual identity. I'm gay, I'm straight, I'm bi. Your idol could be your gender identity. I'm male, I'm female, I'm non-binary, I'm trans. You can even make uh, an idol out of things that are very, very good, like your spouse or your kids or your house, or your car, or food, comfort, pleasure, entertainment. It could be literally anything. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. We pump out idols like we pump blood through our veins. And there's only two options at the end of the day. You either worship the creator or you worship the creation in some form or fashion. And in case you're unaware, the Bible is very clear idolaters do not inherit the kingdom of God. We will read it later. So a good question perhaps to ask yourself at this point is, so how do I know if I'm an idolater? If idolaters don't go to heaven, I certainly don't want to be an idolater. Well, it's actually pretty easy to discern. You just ask yourself some diagnostic type questions and you can determine whether or not you're an idolater. I have a few here that I will share with you. Just some questions for introspection. What do I live for? What am I devoted to? What gets my blood pumping? What makes my heart race? What do I prioritize? What do I make time for? What do I spend my money on? What gives me my greatest joy? What is it that I can't live without? And what has my affections? And ultimately, what has my heart? Proverbs 4 says, above all else, hear that, above all else, guard your heart. Doesn't say follow your heart. You see that on t-shirts nowadays? That is some horrible advice to give to somebody. The Bible says our heart is deceitfully wicked. You can't even understand it. Why would you follow something that is deceitfully wicked that you don't even know how it operates? You guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. You show me who or what has your heart and I'll show you your God. Let's read verses 24 through 28. Therefore, that's hearkening back, do this exchange here, God for an idol. Therefore, God gave them up in the list of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, there it is again, the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Paul can't help but bust in here with praise. He's not ashamed of this. He's praising God in the midst of this thought pattern here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged another exchange, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up, read, exchanged, natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Verses 24, 26, and 28 all have the same phrase. God gave them up. Some of your Bibles will say God gave them over. And we need to know what does he mean by that. We want to know how Paul is utilizing that word here. <clears throat> the Greek word, and all you Greek scholars out there, please be gracious with me. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly. I think it's paradidomy. Paradidomy, and it has various usages in the New Testament, a lot of different shades. For one, it means to give into the hands of another or to deliver over. It can also mean to abandon, and it can also simply mean to permit. And again, we want to know how is Paul using it here? So we want to do something that's called the analogy of faith. We want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. You, you don't want my interpretation. You want the Bible to interpret itself. So how does Paul use paradidomy in some of his writings? Here in Romans and in other letters. Remember that guy in Corinth? He, he had sexual relations with his stepmom. He writes to the church in Corinth, Paul that is, he says, you are to deliver, paradidomy, this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Same for Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over, paradidomy, to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. And how about right here in Romans? He uses it again later, this time in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself being delivered up. Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, paradidomy, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Scholars, the vast majority of scholars agree that this, this is an act of judgment, but it is also an active judgment. It's an act of judgment, but it's active judgment. God is not being passive here. He's not merely letting go. No, he pushes. And that, you know, it might be true that he, that he is allowing people to go their own way initially, but there's more going on. And the best way for me to communicate this, I, I read it somewhere. I don't recall where it came from. This is not my own. This is the last text you want to plagiarize uh, if you've been following the news. <laughs> Some of you will, will appreciate that. Uh, but this is, this is a good picture to help us understand what's going on. Picture a boat, a boat that's up to a dock. All right, we're the boat and we're, we're tethered to the dock such that if we were to become untethered, we would just drift out to sea. And so we're the boat and we're, and we're being kept there by God. He, he's the one, let's say, holding the rope. Theologians refer to this as God's restraining grace. 
He's keeping us there. But when you suppress the truth, God says, oh, so you don't want to listen to me? You don't want to hear what I have to say? Then I'm going to give you over and give you what you want. But he doesn't merely let go of the rope. He does. Then he pushes the boat out into the sea. Sea of sin. The Bible says it's a vast sea of impurity, dishonorable passions, and a debased mind. This is not contrary to their will. Rather, it's consistent with it. Now, I imagine this might be a bit troubling for some of you. You might say, Mike, I'm not even sure you're interpreting that correctly. That doesn't sound right. That that seems inconsistent with what I understand the character of God to be. Fair enough. But again, let the scriptures speak, all right? Don't come to the scriptures, you know, reading into it what you think, some preconceived notion. That's eisegesis. We don't want to do that. We want to do exegesis. We want to draw from it. Let the scriptures speak. So again, let me go to another passage of scripture that deals with this Virtually the same thing here. It's Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I would like you to turn there if you have a Bible. I'll have it on the screen though. This is Second Thessalonians 2. is the same Apostle Paul. He's dealing with the same issue. Verse 10 talks about people who refuse to love the truth. And here's what he says in verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Who sends the strong delusion? Who causes them to believe what is false? It's not Satan. It's God. And why does he do it here? Same reason he does it in Romans It's judgment. It's rejecting the truth that God has already communicated to them. He gives people what they want. And we we might have a tendency to think, well, God giving people what they want, that's a good thing. Well, it depends upon what you want, right? And people want, like Christopher Hitchens, their own autonomy. That means to be a law unto yourself. Don't want to answer anybody. Don't want to be told what to do. And their thinking is busted. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They have these corrupted desires that flow from a deceitfully wicked heart. So the heart of the problem is the problem with our heart. The problem is not with God, it's with us. And this is critical to understand because the rest of the text is just an outworking of that reality. Yet everybody focuses in on verses 26 and 27. Let me read them and we'll deal with it. Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Does this text identify homosexual behavior as sinful? Yes, absolutely. There are people out there that will try to tell you no. 
They got to do all these hermeneutical gymnastics. There's no shortage of people that are doing a ton of backhand springs to get this to say what it doesn't, what, what it's something that it doesn't say very clearly. And this is obviously a very hot topic. I know that. It's highly controversial. And for many people, it's extremely sensitive. So in the limited amount of time we have here, I just want to offer up a couple of thoughts for your consideration based upon the Word of God. In my research, there, there was a word that just kept coming up over and over again, and it grieved my heart in reference to these verses. And the word was clobber. The, the, these, these verses are clobber verses. So the first thing I want to say is the Bible wasn't written to be used like a club to beat people over the head. If you do that, you need to repent. You're not helping at all. It's not why the Bible was written, so you can beat people up with it from on high. Paul, in fact, did not write Romans 1 to condemn gay people. Paul actually wrote Romans 1 and 2 and 3, for that matter, to condemn all people. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, gay and straight alike, we all stand condemned before a holy God. You could be as straight as an arrow. You haven't come under the lordship of Christ, you're currently under the wrath of God. Hear that loud and clear. See, before we even get to women with women and men with men in verses 26 and 27, many of us have already been implicated, myself included. See, apart from Christ, I was condemned already back in verses 22 and 23 when I gave myself to idols, things I mentioned earlier, where I lay my affection and my devotion and my, yes, worship on things like food and entertainment. I could be straight as an arrow, but if my God is my stomach, I am by definition an idolater, and idolaters don't inherit the kingdom of God. My goose is cooked already before we even get to homosexuality. Moreover, on top of that, I'm also condemned in verses 24 and 25. The word impurity there, it goes well beyond homosexual behavior. It includes that, but it also includes things like lust, fornication, and pornography. And I've engaged in all of those. See, before we even get to women with women and men with men, I got a big old fat log sticking out of my eye. I do. And that keeps me from clobbering anyone. You know why? Because I show up to this text battered and bruised if we insist on using that language. I, I show up, I got blood, you know, bloody coming from my nose, two black eyes. If, if, if anybody's clobbered, I'm clobbered. And you know what it does? It humbles me. It humbles me. I have been humbled. And I suspect I'm not the only one in here. This leaves absolutely no room for any sort of moral superiority to come from people like me. But maybe you're not like me. Maybe you, thus far in your life, have been able to walk through this sex-saturated world without being stained in the area of sexuality. You should be praising God up and down. You're a better man than me. I can't say that. But if Romans 1 didn't get you on the front end of those verses, it certainly gets you on the back end. Paul comes with a litany of sins. 
21 if you count them. This is known as a vice list. We're going to get another one in a few minutes. They're all throughout the Bible, just ba-boom, 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 you know, just blow after blow. Have you lived righteously? Have you ever coveted, been envious? You dishonored or been disobedient to your parents? You've been deceitful, gossiped, slandered anyone, been boastful, been foolish? Have you been faithless, heartless, ruthless? Again, we have no business clobbering gay people in verses 26 and 27 when none of us can run through that gauntlet remaining unstained. That ought to humble you and shade the way you interact with others who simply sin differently than you do. We're all eating the same sin Sunday, right? We just choose different flavors of ice cream. You know, you like vanilla, I like chocolate. She likes strawberry, he likes pistachio. And we got a lot of nerve pointing out the ice cream on someone else's face all the while it's dripping off our chin. We don't water down the word of God. I came out straight and I said, this is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin and I'm just getting passionate. Let me calm down because it might sound like I'm getting angry. I'm not. I'm just, I believe this, okay? I want, I want, to, I want to say this, okay? I sometimes get misinterpreted. I'll, I'll smile. Um, listen, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, James 2.10 takes all of us down takes all of us down. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Who are these people standing on high clobbering people with the Bible when without Christ they're damned? That's my first point. My second point is we all draw the line somewhere. I believe most reasonable people, this, this is changing by the day, but for now, most reasonable people have what I would call a line of demarcation. A line that says, over here is good and acceptable, over here is bad and unacceptable when it comes to sexual behavior. We'll use this podium as our line of demarcation. What does God say is good and acceptable in terms of sexual behavior? One thing and one thing only, the marriage bed. It's undefiled. One man, one woman, marriage covenant for life. That's the only thing God says is over here. So what does that mean? Everything else is over here. Everything, and I'm talking everything. I'm talking fornication, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, bestiality, incest, pedophilia, including things like rape and rape fantasies. I'm talking everything. And we all have our lines for now. And we all draw them somewhere. But what people want to do, many people want to go over here and they want to lift homosexuality from this pile over here and they want to put it over here. And God says, nope, you've crossed the line. And, and what we don't often acknowledge, which I'm saying here tonight, is there's many heterosexuals who come over here and lift things like lust and fornication and adultery and pornography and they want to bring it over here. We're, you notice the hypocrisy in that? We all have our lines. We just draw them in different places. So where should we draw our line? Where God draws the line. He's the creator of sex. He's the creator of pleasure. He's the creator of relationships. You want to know how something ought to function? Ask the creator. But we don't and we won't because we don't want to hear from him. And that's the problem. 
That's why you see what's going on in our world today. This is an issue of biblical authority. Who are you listening to? Who's got your ear? Is it you, like Christopher Hitchens? I decide what is right. It's a way that seems right to a man leads to death, Bible says. Who are you listening to? The culture? You listen to Matthew Vines? Who's your person out there that's telling you what goes where? And I'm saying, listen to God. Submit to God's authority and obey his will as he's revealed it. Otherwise, you say, I don't care what God says on this matter. I'm going to do me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And my point is, gay and straight people alike do this. You got people living together who aren't married, shacking up, having sex together, but yet they denounce homosexuality, hypocrisy. Stay tuned, it's coming in chapter two. But, you know, they, they do that, and whether it's adultery or lust or porn, they just don't march in the streets and wave flags promoting it. It's a little more undercover type of thing, which is important to say because the, there's a difference between that and what we read in verse 32, where people do these things that they know lead to death, but then they give approval for others to participate in them. I mean, it's one thing to feel ashamed about it, remorseful, ah, it's a struggle, I don't want to do it, I know what God's word says, I feel bad about it. It's another thing to be prideful about it, to be pumping up pride, to celebrate it, and to devote entire months to it. Those are very different things, and that's an important distinction to make. As we bring it to a close, let me address people that perhaps are here tonight. You struggle with same-sex attraction. And the operative word there is struggle. Because if you don't struggle and you, you've moved it over here, then I, I've, already, I've already spoke to you from God's word. That he's the authority, not you. So if you're struggling with that, I like what one author said. I think it was Michael Brown. He said this, God does not call you to heterosexuality. He calls you to holiness, to holiness. See, you and I have the same problem We both want that which is forbidden. We both lack righteousness in and of ourselves. We both need the righteousness of Christ. Without it, we both perish. You and your homosexuality and me and my heterosexuality. And I've had this conversation with enough gay people to know that this commonality, this common ground that I seek to create with people, it's effective for dialogue. And that's something that our society is incapable of doing. They're terrible at it. We've got to be able to talk about this. We, don't be afraid to talk about homosexuality. You're going to be continually to be marginalized as the days tick by. But we stand on the authority of God's word. We speak with humility to people. We don't come from on high, holier than thou. But we need to be able to dialogue. So I, I put myself on the griddle and get beat up first so they won't beat me up and say, we're all in the same boat, the whole Sin Sunday thing. But I have had this, this conversation with enough people to know that there's one glaring difference. And I will bring it to your attention if you haven't already realized it. They will say to, to me, Mike, but you have an outlet. You have an outlet. And, and I, I don't have a, a simple answer to that. I think that is correct. I recognize the weight of that. But I have too much respect and too much compassion for, for the person I'm engaged with in conversation to simply frivolously throw out a word like celibacy. It's easy for me to say, but here's what I will say. If you're here today, and again, you're the struggler, you're struggling in this area, 
You love Jesus. You know what God's word has to say on this matter. And, and you want to honor him with the totality of your life, including your sexuality. I'm willing to walk with you through this. If not me personally, because I tend to go away for months at a time, I like to think that our church family, a staff of 15 plus people, a sizable elder board, hundreds and hundreds of men and women who love Jesus, I'd like to think that somehow, some way we can help. I know we can. In fact, I know it. I'll go back on that. I'll even ramp it up, double down. We can help you. The question is, do you want that help? That's the question. Are you willing to receive and embrace truth or will you suppress it? 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Because people are deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some people stop at the end of verse 10. Let me encourage you not to do that because verse 11 trumpets out in a glorious fashion, and such were some of you. Corinthians, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's the good news. Don't justify your sin. Confess it, forsake it, repent and believe and be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. There's the hope. And I say, that's the hope for you, those who practice homosexuality, and it's the hope for you idolaters, adulterers, thieves, drunkards, swindlers, fornicators, porn addicts, and the like. And this is exactly what God said to his people in Psalm 81. We'll close right here. He said, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Listen to his, oh, that my people would, he's pleading with people. Listen to me, that Israel would walk in my We need to listen and obey. Please join me in prayer. God, if this text here does not generate within us a gratitude, a thankfulness for your mercy and your grace that you've extended to us, I don't know what will. Lord, we all, like sheep, have gone astray each to our own way, but you laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that we would turn to you, that we would say, I I don't want to reject or push down or suppress that which you have for me, the information that you are to share, that you are communicating to me so that I would walk in your ways. I pray that we would turn to you and be receptive to that. I pray that for us as individuals, And I pray that for our nation as well. Lord, please have mercy. Amen. Please stand as we prepare to close.